Well, we are reflecting today on rebuilding community, which at its core is ultimately about our relationships, our friends. And Jerry Seinfeld has a, a brilliant little stand-up bit about friendship. And it turns out he was unwilling to come and do that bit for us here this morning, uh, despite my most earnest begging. I told him that, that Aaron would go fishing with him, and, and Dan would work out with him, and Aiden would do some handyman projects for him, and Seth would give him some, some beard-grooming tips, and I would, I don't know, eat food with him. I have no skills. Um, but he still declined the invitation, so I'm going to do the, 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 the one thing that couldn't possibly be a super, super awkward disaster, something that every preacher should probably do most often, something that definitely, definitely didn't fall flat on its face in the first service. I'm, I'm going to perform somebody else's stand-up comedy bit, because, because why not? So this is Jerry Seinfeld about friends. And when you're in your 30s, it's very hard to make a new friend. Whatever the group is that you've got now, that's who you're going with. You're not interviewing, you're not looking at any new people, you're not interested in seeing any applications. They don't know the places, they don't know the foods, they don't know the activities. If I meet a guy in a club or a gym or something, hey, look, I'm sure you're a very nice person. You seem to have a lot of potential. We're just not hiring right now. Of course, when you're a kid, you can be friends with anybody. Remember when you were a little kid? What are the qualifications? If someone is in front of my house now, that's my friend. They're my friend. That's it. Are you a grown-up? No? Great. Come on in. Let's jump up and down on my bed. And if you have anything in common at all, you like cherry soda? I like cherry soda. We'll be best friends. And scene. Now, now I've seen that bit, I don't, that 40-second bit, a hundred times. I chuckle every time because it's funny, at least when Jerry Seinfeld does it. It's very funny, but I also believe it's painfully true for many of us, certainly for me. The older we get, it seems the more challenging our relationships can be. Community, the network of relationships and friendships and partnerships that we have in our given sphere of life, community is an incalculable gift and a vexing enigma. In the midst of a series about rebuilding, today we're going to talk about rebuilding community, that relationship web that is deeper than a shared affinity for cherry soda, which God created for, for us, for each of us, to help us experience his love and demonstrate his love more fully than we can on our own. So let's dig into a passage in the book of Hebrews which speaks to the question of Christian community. We'll be reading in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, and we'll refer back to it many times, so feel free to turn there if you'd like um, to, to read along in your Bible or on your device. Again, we'll begin in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Here's what we read. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So, in my several decades in churchdom, I have heard this passage referenced many times with one particular very specific end in mind. 
Verse 25, let us not neglect our meeting together, has been used time and time again as a biblical directive to go to church. Over the course of this past year, as churches have returned to in-person worship services after whatever season of being exclusively online they may have had, I'm certain that congregation after congregation have heard sermons preached from Hebrews 10.25, with the basic and primary message being, hey, let's go, get out of your PJs, come back to church. Jesus is tired of your PJs. And we know that some of you in your PJs aren't even logging on anymore, right? You're just sleeping in. Now, that's not a direct quote from any specific church, but I know that's been a recurring theme because I've talked to pastors, and I know what some of them are thinking. And one of the ongoing sources of tension throughout this season has been the push and the pull of government regulations and mandates at times at odds with our deeply embedded American commitment to individual rights to, to freedom of choice. And many churches have been navigating how to balance our responsibility to listen to earthly authority while knowing that our primary allegiance is to God. You know, just about every church that has been processing that point of tension during this pandemic has used as the biblical argument for we got to meet a church on Sundays. That's Hebrews 10.25, let us not neglect our meeting together. Pandemic or not, the Bible says it, so we got to do it. And you might not be shocked to learn that I have a C.S. Lewis study Bible which offers hundreds of Lewis quotes throughout the Bible associated with particular related passages of scripture, essentially a compilation of his greatest hits of theological and biblical thinking. And the quote that's associated with Hebrews 10.25 is literally labeled, go to church. So friends, there it is. If you are here in the sanctuary, you get 10 points for obeying Hebrews 10.25. If you're watching online, five points for partially obeying Hebrews 10.25. For the rest of you who obviously aren't even hearing this because you didn't go to church, a thousand demerits and ten lashes with a wet noodle for your spiritual apathy and scriptural defiance. Bingo, bongo, bongo. Or maybe, just maybe, I disagree with C.S. Lewis. Yes, audible gasp, feel free, right? Or at the very least, maybe I disagree with the editors of the C.S. Lewis study Bible who labeled his quote, go to church, and then linked it to Hebrews 10.25. See, as I've been processing this passage of scripture, and actually as I've been processing God's heart for his people over the past 18 months, something that I think God has been challenging me to consider is the reality that we are so often prone to take a ginormous God-sized idea and shrink it into a puny us-sized idea. And it seems to me that Hebrews 10.25 might, might just be one of those places. Now let's take a step back and consider what we heard from Pastor Aaron last week in his message about worship based on Hebrews 13. He was talking about the priesthood of all believers, about our invitation to bring a sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. In the temple, a veil separated regular people on one side of the veil with the presence of God on the other side of the veil, which was only accessible to the high priest one day a year. And when Jesus completed his work on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom. The old system of sacrificial ritual that God had used to interact with his people, that system was finished. And this invitation to bring a sacrifice of praise became living and real and active for all who believe in Jesus when that veil was torn. From that point forward, we were all invited into the presence of God, each of us as priests, with full access to worship him, to minister to the presence of Jesus. Now, the, the idea is fleshed out in our passage today in some detail. The first verses that we, that we read from Hebrews 10 said this, We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain 
into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So, so the barriers, the limitations separating us from God through Jesus were dismantled. And what, we, what have we, the church, been doing in the 2,000 years since then? Well, among other things, we've been reassembling and reconstituting barriers and limitations to cordon off God again into particular times and places. It's what we do. Again, I talk to pastors. I'm blessed to be in, in semi-regular contact with the city church pastors and with a network of regional pastors from our denomination and, and have periodic touch points with, with pastors from all across our eastern Pennsylvania district. And let me tell you two things that we've all been saying since COVID-19 turned our world upside down. In the spirit of Dr. Seuss, thing one, what we said a lot last spring is this. Maybe the virus will provide us the opportunity to break away from the idolatry the modern American church has with Sunday morning worship services. Maybe this will be a chance to break free from the toxic idea that our faith can be shrunk down to fit inside a 70-minute experience that happens in a certain building at a certain time on a certain day. And then not long after that, we pastors were saying, thing two, when can we get back to Sunday morning services? I also talk to non-pastors quite often. The flow of thought and conversation was similar for many of you and, and for others. Last spring, huh, this change of pace has been unexpected and difficult, but also strangely refreshing in many ways. The lack of hurry, the lack of frantic angst, I, I kind of like this. Followed shortly, by after, shortly thereafter by, so when will we be back to normal with our Sunday services? And some of you are still longing for that in light of the various lingering non-normalities of, of what we're doing. And let me be clear to state directly what I am not saying. I am not saying that what we do when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings is bad or irrelevant or unimportant, or that those of us are wrong if we have missed certain spiritual experiences or certain familiar moments that we knew and loved and valued. I love going to church. One of the reasons I became a pastor was because I love doing this and planning this and, and leading this kind of experience, this thing we do on Sunday mornings in a church building. I know that not all pastors are like this, but, but when we go on vacation over a Sunday, we go to church somewhere, wherever we are, always. I love it. I love gathering. I love singing. I love listening to preaching. I love wearing a necktie. And not all the time. I don't sleep with a tie on, but, but I love it on Sunday mornings. It has spiritual value to me. This thing, this is good. God is here. God is with us. And he uses this time and this place to minister to his people. I absolutely believe all of that. So don't hear me saying anything otherwise. But the human way is to take complex, God-sized things and strip them down to simpler, more easily digestible bits and pieces that ultimately lose the full value of the original. An example, there were Old Testament priests. And then Jesus came as the ultimate good high priest. And the Apostle Paul declared that we were now all priests. And what did the church subsequently do? We created a new priesthood, new categories to separate people, through, through which certain people were called clergy or priests, and others were called laity or not priests. Let's do a, an important exercise. This will just take a minute. If, if you take notes, you're going to want to write this down. Let's make a list of all of the things that on this side of Jesus, in this historical moment, in the new covenant era, all of the things that only a priest or a reverend or a pastor or the clergy can do. We'll go ahead and write down the acts, the sacraments, the practices that require a professional Christian to be present to do, just like the Bible teaches us. 
Okay? So here we go. And we're done. There are none. Now, I know that there are religious institutions that preach and practice otherwise, but I don't see it anywhere in the early church or anywhere in the Bible. That's one of the many things that Jesus dismantled, that he finished, but it's like the freedom that he gave us was too good, and so we sliced and diced it and went back to the old way. Another example, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was confined to a particular place, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, and then Jesus came to eliminate that confinement to become the temple of God, the the place where God was and then would be available everywhere for all. Again, tore that veil to destroy the notion that God was located in a specific spot and therefore limited in his accessibility. And what did the church do? Well, we started building structures and calling them houses of God, implying that that's where God lives. We even call some of them temples. This is what we do. God frees us from tight little boxes, and we reconstruct tight little boxes in which to live out our faith. I believe that going to church is super important in the life of a committed follower of Jesus. I believe that what we do here on Sunday mornings matters deeply to the heart of God and should matter deeply to his people. I hope and pray that what we as pastors offer to this church family has value and contributes to your walk with the Lord. My goal is not to minimize the importance of important things. My goal is to maximize our view of the ultimate, most important things. So what does this have to do with rebuilding community? Well, I've taken great pains over the past few minutes to try to make a case that Hebrews 10.25 is not saying go to church, or more clearly, it's not only saying go to church. I think it's saying much more than that. For starters, those first several verses help to clarify the Christian community, our relationships, our friendships, our sense of connectedness and belonging within the people of God, it is predicated on what Christ has done. You could say, say the first point this way, drawing near to God builds Christian community. That's the exhortation of, of the first verses that we read. Verse 22 says, let us go right into the presence of God. We are invited into that space, which has nothing to do with a time or place. That is an open-ended invitation to each of us who would call ourselves Christians, believers, followers of Jesus. And that leads to a second significant reminder of this passage, another prerequisite for Christian community. Holding to our hope builds Christian community. Drawing near to God builds Christian community, but holding to our hope builds Christian community. That's what we read in verse 23, which says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. As some of you may be more familiar with the NIV translation, which says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. We spent months last year preaching about hope from every possible side, angle, and perspective. Hope is central to who we are and how we function in light of the love, grace, and mercy of our God as demonstrated on the cross by the death of Jesus and the victory and power of our God as demonstrated through the resurrection of Jesus. That gives us hope, which makes possible real God-honoring Christian community. Which brings us to the charge, the command, if you will, for us to consider here from Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let's read those verses again. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Here's what biblical scholar George Guthrie has to say when considering the message of these verses. 
He wrote a um, commentary on Hebrews, and here's what Guthrie says. The final exhortation of this passage calls this community of Christ followers to a life of mutual encouragement. Christians have a high calling to care for one another and stimulate one another spiritually and morally. Believers are to rivet their attention on the need for conscious activities of encouragement among those in the Christian community. Encouragement cannot take place in isolation. Now we could summarize this, this quote into a final exhortation from this passage, encouraging one another builds Christian community. Drawing near to God builds Christian community. Holding to our hope builds Christian community. Encouraging one another builds Christian community. And what's the context through which we're able to encourage one another? Well, let's press back into that question about what it means to not neglect meeting together, as we see in, in verse 25. Now, pandemic life has been difficult for many. But I hope that we have learned some new lessons, been forced to try things that we otherwise never would have tried, found some new pathways to experience the many gifts and blessings of our God that we wouldn't have stumbled upon if we hadn't been forced to experiment. Let's talk for a minute about worshiping God and connecting with others through a screen. Now, you don't have to search very hard to find a preacher standing in a pulpit declaring in no uncertain terms that online worship really doesn't count. Maybe they would concede that it counted when it was the only option we had available to us, but now that many of us are meeting again in person, that worshiping from home thing or while traveling or wherever is at best like C-minus worship, C-minus gathering. It's better than nothing, but not by much. Because, you know, basic principle of the Lord, if you can't smell the bad breath of the obsessive coffee drinker next to you, are you really together? Now, two years ago, I probably would have agreed with that idea because I'd never experienced anything other than being in a sanctuary and doing this thing that we do together in the same physical space because it's all I knew, it's all I valued. But in saying that a physical gathering is inherently superior to gathering in other ways, are we not by definition limiting God and his power and his work to a physical limitation? Are we not saying that God is somehow unable to minister to us through modern technology and conversely that we are unable to minister to God or to connect with each other through that same technology? I'm not willing to say that anymore. Gathering is essential. Gathering is essential. Togetherness is essential. Hebrews 10.25 says as much. We must not give up gathering. But I think we do ourselves and God a great disservice when we define very specifically what it is to gather. During months last spring and more months this past winter, I was genuinely delighted to gather through a screen with sisters and brothers in Christ. Was it different, even odd? Sure. Were there some things that I missed? Sure. Were there some things that I did not miss? Sure. And I'm not just talking about the wearing of pants. That's something that I think that God has wanted to teach me during this season is to not allow my experiences and my preconceived notions to casually and accidentally, even with the best of intentions, to define what God is able and is therefore unable to do with his people and for his people and through his people and among his people. And I think that our long-standing definition of togetherness, of what it means to gather, was part of what God wanted to deconstruct and reassemble for me. So as we are rebuilding our community... As we are rebuilding what it means to be a church family, I hope that we will continue to stop designating that which we know best and that which we have experienced in profound ways throughout our lives as the only way or the best way for us to be together, to gather, to connect. Now, do you know who's probably most likely to be squirming a little bit in their seats right now? It's the extroverts. 
You're probably thinking, this dude is bonkers. If I don't talk to 35 people and shake 35 hands and give 35 hugs, I haven't been with people. Now, do you know who has been nodding along in their minds with what I'm suggesting? That's the introverts. Introverts, you want to give a quick hey for us right now? No, of course, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that, right? <laughs> I mean, who am I kidding? You'd rather eat rotten kale, which, I mean, that's actually a little redundant. I'm not sure that's different from regular kale. But you'd rather eat rotten kale than give a verbal shout-out, right? I know who you are, introverts. It's been a fascinating thing to observe different types of people processing the past 18 months. The public, the vocal, the boisterous chorus has been various strains of, oh, we have suffered in our isolation. When, when can we literally rub lots of shoulders amongst the masses again? But if you've dug a little deeper at all, you could have found a quiet group of folks hunkered down at home in externally forced isolation saying, yeah, I'm good. No hurry to get back to whatever mass hysteria we used to think was great and normal. Well, friends, a major theme of my spiritual growth over the past several decades has been my need to dissociate from my natural strong inclination to assume that whatever is true for me is and should be true for others, all others. And that includes our understanding and our definition of community. Because as some have clamored for the return to normalcy, where more has always been better when it comes to people, some have appreciated a new reality where actually less has been more. I'm just trying to suggest that Hebrews 10.25 can allow for that diversity of community needs. We all need the same thing, encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ, because encouraging one another builds Christian community, which honors God, acknowledges the hope we have in Christ, and helps to draw us near to him. But we've got to create room for that to look different from one person to another, from one context to another. Now, let's fill out our understanding of Hebrews 10.25, encouragement. Let's look at how comprehensive the, the idea of relational connection that we could enfold within the umbrella term of encouragement, how, how comprehensive that is throughout the New Testament. Because the New Testament writers talk often about what God has done for us through Christ, but those same writers also talk often about what that should mean for us as a Christian community, as the people of God, as the church, as his church. So let's do a quick walk or sprint through some of the one another's in the Bible. Buckle up. Going to go fast. At least 16 times in John 13, 34, for example, we're told to love one another. Romans 12, 10 tells us to be devoted to one another and to honor one another above ourselves. Romans 12, 16 says live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, 19 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, build up one another. Romans 15, 5, be like-minded towards one another. Romans 15, 7, accept one another. Romans 16, 16, greet one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, care for one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 2, Colossians 3, 13, forgive one another and be patient with one another. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Ephesians 5, 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, 21, 1 Peter 5, 5, submit to one another. Philippians 2, 3, consider one another better than yourself. Philippians 2, 4, look to the interests of one another. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. 1 Peter 5.5, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. James 5.16, pray for one another. Now someone's probably thinking, hey, he's only reading the nice ones. Well, let's dig into the saltier parts of this one anothering thing. Romans 15.15 15 and Colossians 3.6 call us to admonish one another. Ephesians 4.16, speak the truth in love to one another. Colossians 3.16, teach one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another. James 5.16, confess your faults to one another. 
And Hebrews 10, 24, stir up or provoke or stimulate one another to love and good works. If we are rebuilding community, if we are reassembling some of the patterns and rhythms and profound values that we have found in the midst of a church family, for many of us that's been here, for some of us, maybe you're newer or you're a guest with us today, that's been elsewhere. But if we are rebuilding community, we're going after all of that stuff together with one another. All of those one another's are part of the assignment, part of the challenge, part of the gift of doing life alongside the beautiful and wacky people who are with us on the journey. And none of those one another say, and you've got to be within spitting distance of a large group of people to do these things. When the writer of Hebrews 10 tells us to not give up being together, to not give up gathering as some are in the habit of doing, he's not merely saying, make sure to attend a corporate worship service every week. Honestly, a quick study of church history would, would reveal that this thing that we are doing here was not common, did not develop as the central expression of the life of the church until several hundred years after Jesus. Yes, the early church met in the temple courts in Jerusalem, but as the church grew and disseminated beyond Palestine, there was no temple in every town and village and certainly no church buildings. Where was the early church gathering? In people's homes. So cue the easy segue from the community groups guy to make a plug for community groups. Well, yeah, sort of. Look, I'm unapologetic in suggesting that one of the best ways that we can find and develop and invest in significant Christ-centered relationships is through community groups. We've got several dozen groups, all different sorts of groups, Bible studies and book studies and discipleship groups and support groups and recovery groups and neighborhood groups and life stage groups and exercise groups, which meet all throughout the week on Sunday mornings, on weekday mornings and afternoons and evenings in lots of different locations here in the church building, yes, but many of them in people's homes all around this community. And they do all different sorts of things meet with different frequency, focus on different things, but an embedded part of every one of the, our community groups is a gathering, a togetherness, out of which substantive relationships can grow. A pandemic has taught us that those groups don't always need to meet in person. As some groups are still meeting online exclusively, the group that I lead, the Classic Christian Book Club, has been doing some hybrid in-person and Zoom meetings, which have allowed us to not give up meeting together, even when we've had people that are you know, quarantining at home because they're COVID positive and and, and we've not had to give up meeting together even when we've had people in Virginia and Colorado and Thailand that have been able to continue to be part of what we're, what we're doing. The particulars aren't the point here. The point is that a community group is a point of connection where we can encourage one another and where we can stir one another on towards love and good works. The older I get, the longer I serve in ministry, the more personal experiences I have, the more and more convinced I am that there are no formulas for any of this, no formulas for, for meaningful church life, no plug-and-chug equations for the complexity of human relationships. I, I had a, a favorite seminary professor who used to flippantly talk about small groups as a place to have tea and scrumpets, and I'm 98% sure that he was aware that scrumpets is not a real word. But I think he was sort of casually telling us that the small group setting was really not his happy place, right? That wasn't his zone. At the time, I was thinking, man, he's just wrong. Small groups are for everybody. Honestly, that's, that's no longer my position. And small groups is part of my job. Relationships are for everybody. Connectedness is for everybody. Gathering, in some sense, is for everybody. But the specific context can vary from person to person, depending on personality, relational leads, life, life stage situation. Some of you, but probably not all of you, need to take advantage next Sunday of our community group connection event. 
at which a number of leaders from open groups will be present in the lobby after each service to chat with you about their group and see if you might consider joining them. Some of you probably need that. Some of you probably need a, a connection to a small group of folks with whom you can pursue the, the one-anothering of Scripture, with whom you can find encouragement and motivation to pursue the things of God. God can do good work, some of his best work, in those very contexts. In fact, in the past two weeks, I had what to me felt like a deeply meaningful experience in that very context in my life, which I got permission to share about today broadly. It began with a challenging exchange in a recent community group setting that was awkward and uncomfortable. Some real tension between a group member and me and a few others in our group. But that difficult moment yielded the opportunity for a one-on-one follow-up conversation between us, during which my brother and I shared our hearts in a powerfully open and vulnerable way. I heard his story. I understood his situation better. I heard some of the hurts that he's carrying in his life. And I hope and pray in a spirit of, of Hebrews 10 that I was able to offer some words of both encouragement and also some challenging words of where I thought God might want to stretch him and soften him and change him to allow him to engage with others in more productive, God-honoring ways. And my friend received those hard words graciously. I think it was a conversation of, of healing and restoration that would not have been possible had we not been in a group together that provided us the context to have a difficult conversation, which provided the context to then have a beautiful, redemptive conversation. Look, we cannot programatize New Testament one-anothering. We can't develop a system which guarantees that everybody will enjoy perfect relational connectedness. We can't assign friends to everybody in this church. We've tried to develop many pathways like our community group ministry, as well as other points of connection like the men's and women's ministries and 2030 Connect and Prime Timers and, and ACF and Awake and, and our children's ministry, all these places to gather together to find and build and to invest in relationships. But there are parts of this equation that are too personal and too messy to develop through some sort of a, of a formula. So here's my word of encouragement to you today. If you, feel, if you feel like your sense of community within this church family or within the family of God more generally is inadequate, if, if it's broken, if it's disconnected in some way, and I know that's not all of you, but for those of you who have that sense that the Lord is whispering into your heart and mind that he desires for you to find a more profound sense of togetherness with folks from this church or, or with other brothers and sisters in Christ, I have a final word of encouragement for you. Take the long view. If we feel like I've got to get this all sorted out right now, immediately, I think we put ourselves in an impossible situation. Human relationships are complicated. They change over the course of, of our life or even over the course of seasons of life. There is no fast track or microwave option for building community. Sometimes it takes a long time to build a, sustain, a sustaining sense of togetherness with others. Sometimes some of that is even our fault. Maybe we're being demanding or needy or prickly or fussy or whiny or selfish or prideful or any number of other things that might push people away. It's a classic joke in the world of church small groups that every group has an EGR, extra grace required. And if you don't think that your group has an EGR, it's you. And I can, I can authenticate this principle because I've been in a lot of groups over the years that do not have an EGR. Wait, what now? So if our sense of community feels less than it ought to be, maybe we've got some internal business to do with the Lord, to become a better friend, to be able to make friends. 
And sometimes our inability to settle into the relationships that we desire isn't about us, but it's about the community we're trying to enter. Maybe that community, this gathering, or that group is being unresponsive or unwelcoming or self-righteous or exclusive or uncaring. Yeah, that's, that's just sort of part of the deal. You know, Jesus went around connecting with people, with communities, and when they didn't want him, he moved on. Now, that's a lot easier said than done, but sometimes the group we're pursuing is not the group for us. So we keep looking, we keep pursuing, we keep trying, we keep waiting. That's the nature of the imperfections and the complexities of real Christian community. And that's an important word, real. If we're talking about some sort of idealistic pie-in-the-sky, mythical vision of, of human relationships, we're setting ourselves up for inevitable disappointments. If we base our goal for Christian community on some over-spiritualized version of whatever depiction of community is most appealing to us, whether it's from cheers or from friends or from the office or theoretically maybe they've continued to make television shows over the last 10 years. I don't know. I have no point of reference for anything newer than that. But I bet that some new current shows depict friends in ways that look really compelling too. That's fine, but let's understand all these examples. They're fictional. They're imaginary. They're idealized. Whether we slap a thick veneer of spiritual expectations on top of our favorite depiction of community, we often we often start dreaming the impossible dream, right? And when everything inevitably falls short of that, we're left wanting more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my spiritual heroes, a 21st century German Lutheran, and a deep thinker, a deep investor in relationships at the seminary where he taught early in his life before becoming a voice of opposition to the Nazis. Bonhoeffer wrote one of the seminal works on Christian community called Life Together. Consider this simple but profound sentiment. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Let me say that again. I think it's so good. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. I've had to do business with the fact that my experience in community has in fact been imperfect. I've had to let some dreams die due to my imperfections and the imperfections of others and the imperfections of just life. I was chatting about this, this message with our pastoral team earlier this week, and I kind of, I, I didn't want to admit this, but honestly, most of my closest adult friends have been part of my life over the past 10 or 15 years. They've all moved. They don't live here anymore. And while we keep in touch super sporadically, our friendships are forever changed. They they aren't broken, but there's a massive distance between us, literal and figurative. God is not limited by physical space, but we humans are in some sense. And the lack of, lack of proximity, well, I miss my friends. And honestly, I really don't like admitting this, but years later, I'm still mad at them for leaving. Because it turns out that they have not been replaceable in my life. There are just some holes where the absence of those people, it lingers. I'm learning to name that loss, to grieve that loss, and then to keep on keeping on, taking the long view, not looking to reproduce something that was good or replicate something that was beautiful, but to simply receive whatever new thing God might have in store for me in my community. So I'm working on this as I'm inviting you to do the same. Let's, let's set aside our dream of the perfect community. Let's instead Commit to simply loving those around us and seeing if God might build something in us 
and through us that would allow us, each one of us as members of his family, as part of the body, as people in this church, in this church community, to do some one-anothering together. Again, I think there are ways that we can just keep this super simple. The, the book club, recently reading the Ragamuffin Gospel, discovered this beautiful Jewish concept of mikdash miat. This is the quote from Brennan Manning. To, to share a meal is a guarantee of peace, trust, fraternity. Mikdash miat is the miniature sanctuary of my dining room table where we will celebrate the most sacred and beautiful experience that life affords, friendship. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it can be a beautiful gift. What might God be saying to us today? Well, if, if you needed to hear, go to church, then fine, go to church. Yes, that's a good thing. If you needed to hear, find a community group, then fine, yes, find a community group or start a community group if you can't find one. That's a good thing. And if you needed to hear something less specific, but no less important, if you needed to hear, just maybe keep pressing in over the long haul, well then, keep pressing in. Maybe your Hebrews 10.25 calling isn't primarily to large events or, or to small groups. Maybe it's just to find one person, one sister or brother in Christ who will encourage you and who will motivate you to love and good deeds. Maybe that begins for you by inviting someone to lunch or inviting someone or a couple or a family to the miniature sanctuary of your dining room table. If so, go for it. It's a good thing. And maybe you're in a good space right now with your Christian community. And so maybe your calling today is to invite somebody else into that space so that they might experience the richness that you're experiencing. Friends, let's encourage one another and motivate one another to acts of love in the name of Jesus for his glory and for our joy. Pray with me. Lord, we come today thanking you for the gift of human relationships through which you bless and love us, through which you work in us, through which you stir to create us to be more and more like Jesus. What a great gift, and yet we acknowledge what a complicated gift. And so, Lord, we just open up our lives, our hearts, our minds, and say, what would you have for me? Do I need to re-engage with what happens on Sunday mornings as a church family? Then would you draw us here? Do I, need to, do I need to find my place in a small group community somewhere? Help draw me there. Do I need to find a connection with just one person? Would you draw me there? Whatever it is, Lord, would you allow each of us to respond? And again, if we would say that we are exactly where you want us to be, and maybe we don't need to find something for ourselves. Maybe we need to invite somebody else in for their sake. Lord, as we come before you in this, in this beautiful act of communion now, we do so thanking you for the opportunity to do that together as a people gathered in unity to celebrate the gift of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.